offers up Jesus Christ as the one that could be released, and instead they call for Barabbas, a criminal, a robber, to be released. So now Pilate has gambled on the fact that they would release Jesus and not Barabbas, and that gamble didn't play off, pay off because the people wanted Barabbas released. So now Pilate finds himself in a difficult position. He doesn't want to show weakness, but at the same time, he's afraid of the religious leaders. He's afraid of what could happen. And so we get to chapter 19. It says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate resorted to scourging the Savior. Now, scourging by the Romans was done for three reasons. Sometimes it was done to punish prisoners. Sometimes it was done to gain confessions of crimes. And sometimes it was done to weaken the victim so that he would die more quickly on the cross once he went to crucifixion. Now, we don't know for sure what Pilate had in mind, but I might guess because of the fact that he could not find fault in Christ that he was hoping that during the scourging, Christ would blurt something out that he could use against him as a reason for the fact that he was there. I don't know. But Barclay in his commentary tells us this. He says that the scourging was so excruciatingly painful and hard on the body that most no man actually stayed conscious during the entire scourging. Most men would go unconscious. Some men that remained conscious by the end of the scourging went raving mad because of the scourging, and many people even died just during the scourging. That's how brutal this practice was, practiced by the Romans. And we don't need to go into all the details of it other than to say uh, a, 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 a strap of leather strips had bone and rock attached to it. It was thrown across the back of the body with violent force and then yanked through the flesh on the back of the body. And many times it did so much damage to the body that organs were actually pulled through the back of the rib cage out of the body during scourging. That's how brutal what happened to Jesus Christ was. So Christ not only experienced the, the scourging at this point, but then also the great humiliation, the crown of thorns thrust upon His head. The purple robe in mockery of Him claiming to be King. The slapping by the, by the soldiers. The ridicule as they said, Hail, King of the Jews. These were all things that Jesus Christ experienced in these first few verses. It says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Jesus was so badly beaten between the scourging and the beating by the soldiers that he was not recognizable. And in doing that, that was also a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14. It says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus Christ was so badly beaten for your sin and mine that he was not recognizable. And he hasn't even gone to the cross yet, folks. This is just the beating leading up to the cross. And then we get to verse 4, and we see the condemnation of Christ. 
It says, Pilate therefore went, again, went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Isn't it interesting? Pilate on every turn is trying to express that he finds no fault in Jesus, but because of his fear of the religious leaders and what could happen, he keeps moving the process along, even though at each step of the process he says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault. I believe he says that five times during this trial of Jesus Christ. And he comes out again after the scourging and says, I find no fault in him. And then verse 5 says, Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And then Pilate exclaims something that has echoed down through history. It says, Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Jesus, not even recognizable now from the scourging that took place. And I don't know if Pilate somewhere deep down inside felt like surely at this point the religious leaders would feel like this has been enough and release Jesus because he couldn't find any fault in him. I don't know. But Pilate brings Jesus out unrecognizable and says, Behold the man. And you've got to wonder, in the crowd, maybe at that point, with Jesus' person being so torn to shreds from the scourging and his face beaten so badly from the beating, that there probably were people in the crowd at this point that were beginning to second-guess what they had decided. And maybe those people began to think, well, maybe we should release him. But I want you to see who speaks up. It's the chief priests, the religious leaders of the day. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. And he says one more time, For I find no fault in him. Folks, it was the religious leaders of the day that were so determined to put Jesus Christ on the cross. That even after this intense beating, even after the scourging, even though Pilate could find no fault with him, they still cried out, crucify him. What made the priests so full of rage? Well, here's what it was. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Through our entire study of the book of John, what is one thing we have seen over and over and over and over again? It's this very thing. What Jesus knew would put Him on the cross. All through the book of John, Jesus Christ declared Himself to be God. Time and time and time again. Letting the people know that I am am God. Remember when he said, I am. I am God. And time and time and time again throughout this this book, Jesus has declared that he is God, knowing that it was that statement that was going to put him on the cross. Because they could not accept the fact that he was the Son of God. And so they call for his crucifixion. Because he declared himself to be the Son of God. 
Now, this is the first Pilate has heard of this declaration. And, and, and so what do we see in verse 8? It says, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid. So you've got to think, what was going through Pilate's mind? Well, Pilate was a Roman. And, and, and Pilate had, knew of the stories of, and I'm going to use God's little g, God's who had offspring that would come in the form of men. And so Pilate's religious belief system would have told him that it's possible for some deity to have a son that would come in the form of a man. And so now Pilate's pretty concerned about what I'm about to do here. And on top of that, we can go back into the book of Matthew, into Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19. John, John doesn't record this, but it's interesting what happened in verse 27 and verse 19. In the middle of all this trial... In verse 19, it says this, When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife, Pilate's wife, sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Pilate's own wife sends message to him while they're in the middle of this trial and says, This man is just. Don't have anything to do with him. But Pilate was more afraid of the religious leaders than he was his wife. And now even with this, with this stating that Jesus Christ declared himself to be the Son of God, now he thought God, little g, not Son of God, capital G, but Pilate finds himself in a position where he's afraid. And so he turns and goes back into the judgment hall. Remember, Pilate was going back and forth because the Jews in their hypocrisy would not go into the judgment hall because it was the Passover time. You know, wouldn't want to hurt ourselves during the Passover time even though we're going to crucify an instant man. But they would not go into the judgment hall. So Pilate goes back into the judgment hall to Jesus and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? He was concerned now. He wanted to know where Jesus had come from. But Jesus had already answered that question because Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus doesn't speak. It says, but Jesus gave him no answer. And then, verse 10, saith Pilate unto him, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and I have power to release thee? So now Pilate's going to show forth his strength, his ability as a Roman ruler. He says to Jesus, I have the power to crucify you, and I have the power to release you. So you need to speak, is basically what he said. And I love the response of the Savior in verse 11. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. That's a powerful statement, folks. Jesus looks at Pilate, the Roman governor, who has the ability to put him to death on a cross, and he says, you have no power over me, except it's given you from the Father above. That's the only place you get that power. That's what Jesus Christ said. He said, therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Referring back to the religious leaders. They were the ones that delivered Jesus to Pilate. And whatever it was in that statement of Jesus that says, you could have no power over me except it come from above, Pilate 
became more determined to release Jesus. And we see that in verse 12. John's recording a first-hand witness account. John says, and from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. I mean, Pilate was afraid, folks. He didn't, know, he didn't know if this man was truly the Son of God. He didn't know what he was dealing with. But all he knew was, for whatever reason, I need to try to get this man released. That's what he was determined to do. And from that moment on, he sought to release him. But notice what, the sa- what it says. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. So now the Jews are going to rationalize and try to put Pilate in a corner. Because Caesar was important to Pilate. Obviously, he was his boss. And so, and so they're going to say, listen, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Well, Pilate relied on Caesar for his power. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Now we don't know at this point, we don't know at this point if Pilate was saying, Behold your king, sarcastically, that this is the best you have to offer as Jews for your king. Or if he was believing now maybe that there was something about this Jesus and he was saying to them, Behold your king. We're not sure in which which way this was brought up. But they led Jesus Christ to this point. And he brings him out and says, Behold your king. And it says, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And then I want you to see the last sentence in that verse. The absolute unbelievable hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. Because they said, We have no king but Caesar. Folks, I mean, it's almost laughable. The the religious leaders of the Jews wanted what? They wanted a king to do what? To overthrow Rome. That's why they didn't accept Jesus, because they didn't want a baby in a manger. They wanted a king that was going to help them overthrow the Roman Empire. And so Pilate brings out Jesus and says, you're king. And they say, we don't have any king but Caesar. Caesar's our king. Amazing. The hip hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Suddenly, the Roman king is their king. How hypocritical. It says, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate's out of things to do. So verse 16 says, Then delivered he therefore unto them to be crucified, And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. The place of the skull. The place of death. Phillips in his commentary says this. He says, they led the Lord of life to the place of death. Powerful thought. And verse 18 simply says, 
where they crucified him, and two others with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. You know, it's interesting to me, folks, as horrible as Roman crucifixion was, none of the gospel writers give us much of an account. They simply say that Jesus was crucified. Now, we know from history the horridness of crucifixion. We know how what a horrible practice it was. The Romans were experts at painful death. But none of the writers of the, our Gospels give us much description of the crucifixion, very few details. But it says Jesus Christ was crucified in the midst. In the middle. Jesus was centered. And you know, I th that's an interesting thought. That Jesus Christ would be centered. We have a picture of Jesus between what? The saved and the condemned. One thief that came to a knowledge, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the other that didn't. We see Jesus Christ on the cross between believing and rejecting. Centered between saved and perishing. Centered between God and man. Jesus Christ was placed between two. And what a great picture of what he does for us. Centered between us and God is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. See, the chief priests didn't want anybody to think that this was really the king of the Jews. And so they wanted Pilate to change what he had written over Jesus' head. See, placards were put on crosses to describe the crime that the person had committed. Above every cross was a placard hung that told what they had done. And the only thing that Pilate could write on Jesus' cross was that King of the Jews. Now, once a Roman governor wrote and placed a placard above the cross, it could not be changed. I find that interesting. So when the chief priests come to him and say, don't write king of the Jews, write he said, I am the king of the Jews. And then probably one of the most famous scriptures in, in, in passages in scripture where Pilate has finally come to the point he's willing to take a stand. Pilate says this, what I have written, I have written. That's powerful, folks. Because Pilate, as an enemy of Jesus Christ, has just declared him to be the king of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? 
It's just like Caiaphas back several chapters before where Caiaphas in chapter 11, if you remember, we talked about this story twice, Caiaphas back in chapter 11 when he was talking about how it would be good for one man to die for the nation as the nation's savior. Remember that story? Chapter 11, verse 41, it says, And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. See, Caiaphas, one of the enemies of Jesus Christ, said it's expedient that somebody die for the nation. So let it be Jesus Christ. Not knowing, not knowing what he was saying, but it was expedient that Jesus Christ would die for the nation and that he would die for every one of us, for my sins. One of the songs we we read today says it was my sin that held him there. My sin held my Savior on the cross. Jesus died for the nation and for all of mankind. And so Caiaphas, as an enemy, says it's imperative that one be the Savior. And he was the Savior. And now Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. He's the King of the Jews. That's what I've written. It's amazing how even men in his, man in his attempt to kill the Savior has still given us insight to who the Savior is. And Pilate says, what I have written... I have written. Verse 23. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, And for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. It's interesting. All throughout this process, Scripture is being fulfilled. Old Testament Scripture. That his visage would be marred. That his clothes would be parted. That this would happen. That this would happen. That this would happen. All throughout crucifixion, we see passages that talk to us fulfilling the Old Testament. But then there's a shift in what's taking place in verse 25. And it's an important shift. It says, Now therefore stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine what had to be going through a mom's mind that day? to watch her son hung on a Roman cross. It had to break her heart. And I want you to see in the pain and agony of a Roman cross where Jesus' concern is. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, (laughs) John, the writer of the book of John, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. 
Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. On the cross, beaten in agony, dying a slow death, Jesus Christ, once again, worried about somebody else. Worried about his mom. And he gave responsibility to John. And we don't know what else, anything else was said, but the Bible just tells us John took that responsibility and took her into his home. The compassion of Jesus Christ, even on the cross. After this, Jesus knowing, verse 28, that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst. Now there was a set of vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it up to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, and before I read what he said, some of the other gospels tell us in a loud voice. What Jesus was about to say, folks, was not the breath of a dying man. It was the breath of victory. (laughs) Because what Jesus said is, it is finished. It is finished. What was finished, folks? The work. The work that God had given him today, to do that day. The work of redeeming mankind. The work that was set in motion from the start of humanity, from the beginning of this world. The work that was all throughout Jesus' ministry on this earth, the point it was heading for, it is now done. And so Jesus says, it is finished. Not in agony, not in a weak voice, but lifts up his voice and says strongly, it is finished. It was a song I've heard since I was a kid. And the verses go like this. It says, there's a line that is drawn through the ages. On that line stands an old rugged cross. On that cross a battle is raging. Or the gain, a man's soul, or its loss. On one side march the forces of evil. All the demons and all the devils of hell. On the other, the angels of glory. And they meet on Golgotha's hill. The earth shakes with the force of the conflict. And the sun refuses to shine. There hangs God's Son in the balance. And then, through the darkness, he cries, It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There'll be no more war. It is finished. The end of the conflict. It is finished. And Jesus is Lord. What a beautiful thought was Jesus on the cross gave up his life for you and for me. Oh, folks, remember what he said in chapter 10. It wasn't taken from him. Chapter 10, verse 17 says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus Christ says, they didn't take it from me. 
I gave it. I gave it. Now back over to the end of chapter 19. It says the Jews, the Jews therefore, verse 31, because it was of the preparation and the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. One of the practice of the Romans was to expedite the crucifixion process if they needed to get it done more quickly was to break the legs of those on the cross because if the legs were broken they could no longer push themselves up to gasp for the breath that they so desperately needed and they would die of asphyxiation. It says, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Another fulfillment of scripture, folks that no bone would be broken. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. But when Jesus was pierced inside, folks, and blood and water came out of the piercing. Some people have tried to look at that from a medical perspective, and people that do that believe that Jesus died of a broken heart, and that the blood from his heart was intermixed with the sac that surrounds the heart, which has more of a clear fluid, and that when the soldier pierced the side because Jesus died of a broken heart, the blood and the water came out. Could be. But I find that more commentators believe this. Many believe it's a picture of the Old Testament sacrifice where there was always blood, but there was always water. In the tabernacle, God placed the brazen altar where the blood of the animal would be and the brazen laver where they would wash their hands in the clear water those were placed between the sinner and God. The blood and the water. And folks, I don't know why when the soldier pierced his side that blood and water came out. I'm not here to tell. I'm not medically, <laughs> I don't know enough medicine to explain that phenomenon. But it could very well be that God was giving us one more picture of the sacrifice that Jesus made that it was Jesus Christ who stood between the sinner and between God as Savior. See, folks, there's a, there's a gap that has to be bridged. There's a gap between the sinner and God. And there's only one way to bridge that gap. And Jesus told us the way earlier in the book, in one of his I Am sayings, where Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. How? But by me. I'm the bridge. I'm the bridge between mankind and God. And that's what our Savior did, folks, when he went to the cross. Now, I'm thankful to report, as we've sung today, Christ didn't remain in the grave, folks. <laughs> Because we ended our song service today was Christ, with Christ the Lord is risen today. And next week, we're going to look at that wonderful resurrection.
as Jesus Christ conquered hell and the grave. And we're going to participate in communion next week. Something that Christ told us that we should practice until he comes again. To commemorate what he did for us on that cross. The blood that was shed for our sins. The body that was broken for our sins. But next week, folks, with joy, we will look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. As we come to the end of the message, a very straightforward message today. We've all heard the crucifixion story, probably preached Easter after Easter after Easter. But folks, what Jesus did on that cross, he did for you and for me. He took my sin debt, and he took your sin debt, and he paid the debt. That's what's so amazing. There was a debt that could not be paid any other way. There was no other way to pay the debt except by Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And he paid the debt, folks. It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There will be no more war. Jesus is Lord. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed as Judy begins to play. I don't know how the Lord spoke to your heart today. Maybe you just need to spend some time in prayer with the Lord today. I don't know. But if you need to spend time at the altar, the altar is open this morning as we wait just a moment to do business.